Radio Catskill, WJFF, Jeffersonville. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk report highlights the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, the successor to the Hubble Telescope. Along the Poets Row, Christine San Jose offers narration on the theme of winter. Stephanie Phillips shares her conversation with Professor Dr. William Powell from SUNY Syracuse. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about the importance of chestnut trees. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country here on Radio Catskill. But first, the news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. The Biden administration's rule requiring some 84 million private sector workers to be vaccinated or undergo weekly testing has been reinstated. NPR's Andrea Hsu reports the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled to lift a stay imposed by another court. The vaccine or test rule was originally set to take effect January 4th, but the Biden administration is now giving employers another month to implement the weekly testing requirement. OSHA will not issue citations until February 9th, as long as an employer is, quote, exercising reasonable good faith efforts to comply with the rule. But unvaccinated workers must wear masks on the job starting next month. Already, numerous business and religious groups have asked the Supreme Court for a new emergency stay. They say the government overstepped its authority in issuing the rule. The Sixth Circuit found that delaying its implementation would be costly, citing the 800,000 people in the U.S. who have already died from COVID. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Omicron coronavirus infections in Britain are rising sharply and quickly. UK health officials report more than 10,000 Omicron cases in the latest 24-hour tally. That's a pandemic record in Britain. As of today, British residents and citizens are banned from entering France. And Willem Marx says that's disrupting holiday plans for thousands. The new rules require travellers to have an essential purpose to make their trip unless they work in the trucking industry or a French nationals or residents. Other European Union citizens can transit through France on their way to a third country, but all new arrivals will need to show a recent negative COVID-19 test and isolate for at least two days. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization says Omicron is now reported in 89 countries where the number of cases is doubling in one and a half to three days. Cases of Delta doubled in about a week. The judge in the federal fraud trial of one-time Silicon Valley star Elizabeth Holmes has sent the case to the jury. Holmes ran the blood testing company Theranos that dissolved in scandal. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, deliberations are scheduled to begin Monday. A jury of eight men and four women who've listened to nearly four months of evidence in the trial of Holmes are now weighing her fate. Prosecutors accuse Holmes of building a company on a foundation of lies and duping investors out of hundreds of millions of dollars. Holmes' defense team has countered that a business failing is not a crime and that Holmes never intentionally defrauded anyone. 
Theranos made Holmes the youngest female self-made billionaire and landed her on the cover of magazines. Some called her the next Steve Jobs. Now a jury will decide whether she is guilty of wire fraud, a crime that, if convicted, can send her to prison for years. Bobby Allen, NPR News, San Francisco. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Christine San Jose walks along the Poets Row, narrating on the theme of winter. Professor Dr. William Powell speaks with Stephanie Phillips about chestnut trees. First, here's Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this locally produced Farm and Country. Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Early this morning, NASA launched the largest, most powerful, and complex telescope ever built into space. The telescope, called the James Webb Space Telescope, lifted off from French Guiana shortly after 7 a.m. today. The James Webb Space Telescope is an orbiting infrared telescope that will be able to peer back into time to the formation of the first galaxies. These galaxies are so far away that the light they emitted has shifted from the visible part of the spectrum to the infrared part of the spectrum. Also, the telescope will be able to see through the dusty clouds that surround stars to see planetary systems forming. This shroud of dust absorbs visible light, but not infrared light. The telescope has many differences to the well-known Hubble Space Telescope. The James Webb Space Telescope will observe the universe at infrared wavelengths, whereas the Hubble Space Telescope observes the universe at visible and ultraviolet wavelengths. The James Webb Telescope will have a primary mirror that will be 6.5 meters in diameter compared to Hubble's primary mirror, which is 2.4 meters in diameter. Lastly, the Hubble Telescope is in Earth orbit and the James Webb Telescope will orbit the Sun one million miles away from Earth. The James Webb Telescope is not so much a replacement for the Hubble Telescope as it is a successor to the Hubble Telescope. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up.
For WJFF and Farm and Country, this is Christine San Jose. We're all about winter along the Poets Row today, with some very different views. First, two from Richard Le Gallien, an Englishman who had the sense to come to the U.S. I suspect one was written near the beginning of the winter and one near the end. See what you think. The first one is called Frost. Summer gone, winter here, ways are white, skies are clear, and the sun a ruddy boy all day sliding, while at night the stars appear like skaters gliding on a mere. And then comes this one. Winter, some call thee fair, yea, flatter thy cold face, with vain compare of all thy glittering ways and magic snows, with summer and the rose, thy phantom flowers and fretted traceries of crystal breath, thy frozen and fantastic art of death, with April as she showers the violet on the leaves, and bears her bosom in the blossoming trees, and dances on her way to laugh with May. Winter, that hath no bird to sing thee, and no bloom to deck thy brow. To me thou art an empty, haunted room, where once the music of the summer stirred, and all the dancers fallen on silence now. <laughs> Has somebody fed up with winter? Let's see what the kids have to say. A little batch of them shared very kindly with us by Highlights for Children. Here's Brian from Nebraska, a winter setting. A blanket of snow was strung across the yard like vanilla frosting on a cake. The little house sits surrounded by trees that hold no leaves at all. The snow reflects the light, throwing it back on us, keeping our lives bright. And here's Karen from Alberta. My goodness, these are people who know the snow. Winter is the wind howling through the trees. Winter is the chill biting at my knees. Winter is the season thawing into spring. Winter is the frozen time that makes my heart sing. Here's one. Jessica from Massachusetts. Cold again. Jessica says, Toss me a winter with a wind that blows. Toss me a winter with some deer and a doe. Toss me a winter full of ice and snow. Just toss me a winter. <laughs> but here's somebody from New York. Elise. First frost. I was sipping my cocoa this morning when I saw a beautiful sight. Jack Frost had been around at night and painted the green grass white. He painted the car and he painted the tree. But I was inside, so he couldn't paint me. <laughs> there you go. That may be the secret. But I was inside, so he couldn't paint me. And what of a local view? Here from Sandy Long, as you know, superb photographer, let alone such, a, such an excellent poet. By Sandy Long, here is Love Litter. There on the lake, someone's taking the time to lay a crusty pinkish line in the shape of a heart melted into the snow. 
That's love art lying there, like the lettered love that lingered in the snow dust on that lonely road I love. Bill loves Sue forever. I smile at this scrawled promise, at all the love littered throughout this landscape, at pink hearts melting into lakes. This has been Christine San Jose for Farm and Country along the Poet Road. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. This morning I'm talking with Dr. William Powell, Director of the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse. Dr. Powell has devoted much of the last 35 years to the study of chestnut blight. Today, he will explain the devastating effects of this fungal disease on American chestnut forests. I am a professor at the College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. I teach classes, I do research and service, just like all other faculty members. I got my PhD at Utah State University in Utah. And interesting that they don't have any chestnut trees out there, yet that's where I first uh, got interested in American chestnut, working with my major professor, Dr. Neil Van Alphen. He actually studied uh, a phenomenon called hypovirulence, where a virus attacks the fungus that attacks a tree and causes it to lose its ability to attack the tree. And I got into his lab. I learned all about the chestnut and the chestnut flight and ways to try to bring the tree back. You said hypovirulence, in other words, a reduction in the likelihood of infection. Yes. It turns out there's actually a, a fungus that attacks the tree, and it does. It does reduce the fungus ability to attack the tree. And in Europe, they actually use this quite extensively to control the blight in European chestnuts. It hasn't been successful here in the United States, and that's why we started a track of genetic engineering of American chestnuts to make them resistant. Bill, can you tell us the importance of chestnut trees to people in the areas where they used to grow? Yeah, it had many values. The American chestnut was a tall timber-type tree. Wood was rot-resistant. It was used for all kinds of purposes. People used to say it would follow you from the cradle to the grave because it was used in all the purposes between there. It also produced a very consistent nut crop. People used to go this time of year, just in the past few months, chestnutting in the woods and collect nuts to eat themselves. Some of the more subsistence farmers would collect nuts, bring them into their local stores, and use them as almost like uh, money to buy their kids' shoes for the winter. Those would get shipped off to the city, and then uh, people would buy the chestnuts from chestnut vendors on the streets. So very important for food and for timber. Also, people used to release their hogs actually into the woods during the fall and fatten them up for the Christmas season. So many different values, very important tree. 
I used to have a house built in 1910, and the woodwork was chestnut, and it's kind of a mellow, beautiful, reddish-brown color. Very beautiful wood, very easy to work. My grandfather used to sell antiques from, like, the 1800s, and he said, well, you find chestnut oftentimes are the insides of furniture because it was so easy to work. You usually don't find it on the outside because chestnut's a little bit softer than, let's say, a uh, black cherry or a walnut. So those other trees we use on the surfaces, but the chestnut, we find it inside the drawers and all that, those other areas. Bill, our listeners are located in the Catskills. Did American chestnuts once live in this area? Oh, yeah, they were very abundant in the Catskills. And, and you can kind of see this by looking at place names. So you have several places called Chestnut Ridge in that area. And that's because chestnuts actually were kind of ridge-type trees. They grew very well on the ridges of mountains, and so people would take on that name. You probably can find chestnut streets around your area, and that's because they were just so abundant. It was just part of the culture at the time. Right. I was recently hiking in Chestnut Mountain right around here. What happened to bring the American chestnuts close to extinction? It happened about a little over a century ago. People were starting to import Asian species of chestnut, and the reason why is because the Asian species for thousands of years have been bred to be orchard-type trees, and unlike the American chestnut, which is a wild tree. So people brought them over for ornamental purposes as well as setting up orchards so they're easier to harvest than going into the forest and collecting nuts. But they didn't realize when they start bringing these trees over from around the world, they don't bring just the tree over. They bring over all the microbes on that tree. And it turns out there was this fungus on this tree called Cryponectera parasitica. That fungus, even though on the Asian trees only caused very minor damage, our trees, the American chestnut trees, were very naive to this fungus, never been exposed to it. And so when it jumped off those Asian trees onto the American trees, the American trees were very susceptible and it could kill them very quickly. So when did this happen? Would there be any people alive today who have seen chestnut forests? There probably is still a few people alive. <laughs> uh, a lot of people have passed away since the original infection. So the blight probably started somewhere near New York City on Long Island. But from there, it kind of spread out through the Chestnut Range, which have been all along the Appalachian Mountains, and within 50 years went through the whole range. So anybody alive today who's seen the Chestnut Forest were probably living down in the southern part of the range because it took a long time to reach that area. Or you're in the Catskill area. I've, I've gone down and actually went to Mohonk Mountain. That's an interesting place because the family that owned that, they kept family records each year, and they actually recorded when the chestnut flight went through their mountain. The first record said they don't understand what's going on because their chestnut trees are drying up. And then they go later, they find out, you know, because they contact Cornell and stuff and found out it was the chestnut blight. And it's like an 18-month record. And at the end of it, they're talking about, oh, we need to buy some portable sawmills to cut up all these chestnut trees that are dead. Hmm. So <laughs> basically kind of logging, you know, the, the flight went through in, in the, about a two-year period, killing all their trees. <laughs> wow. How long have you worked on the restoration of the American chestnut? And who collaborated with you on that? Well, I started actually in graduate school, so I started back in 1983, hard to believe. Our project here at ESF started in 1989, and this was in collaboration with uh, the American Chestnut Foundation. There was a New York chapter of that foundation that came to us at ESF and asked, is there a different way than our breeding program to make a resistant chestnut tree? And they came to myself and Dr. Maynard, who's been my longtime collaborator at ESF, 
And he said, yeah, we could use this new technology of genetic engineering. Back in the 1980s, that was new, not so new now. And we started a program that they wanted to start to try to find a gene or genes that could be put into the tree and make it resistant to blight using this technology. Uh Uh-huh. I had read that Maine has a program to develop resistant American chestnut trees by that backbreeding that you mentioned. Why didn't you take that approach? Okay. So that was an approach that was originated by the American Chestnut Foundation called the Burnham Plan, and they started that back in 1983 when they were founded. And the idea there was to take a hybrid between the American and, let's say, a Chinese chestnut, and those hybrids, which people have been making for 50 or more years, could not actually be used in restoration because it does not survive in our forests. So hmm. the idea was be to take that tree back across it to the American through several generations to try to recapture the American type so it could survive in our forests, but at the same time retain the resistance from the Asian species. Now, the problem with that is that when they first started the program, they thought there might have only been two genes, which have been easy to follow through the breeding. Then they quickly found out there was at least three, and now they know there's at least 12, one on every single chromosome of the chestnut. And that makes it really extremely difficult to follow. So, so far what they've done is they have enhanced resistance, but not as high as the Asian chestnut. There's kind of an intermediate levels resistance. And they still have quite a bit of the characteristics still of the Chinese chestnut that they need to breed out. Uh So they might be able to do it in another 30 years or more, but we decided to do a quicker approach where we don't change any of the genes of the American chestnut. We keep it exactly the same. We just add a gene that will allow it to be resistant to the blight. And when I say those 12 genes, you're not only getting those 12 genes in the breeding program, but you're getting thousands of genes from the Asian species because they're not separated. When you're breeding, you're just mixing all the genome together. Where ours, we actually isolate individual genes and put in the individual gene. So uh, we are much more precise and not getting all that extra baggage being carried over. Uh huh. Can you give us an idea what the chestnut trees look like and what the forests look like? Yes, the American chestnut was one of the more common trees in the eastern forest. I should say within its range in the eastern forest, all along the Appalachian Mountains in some places, you could have one out of four trees being an American chestnut. It was a canopy tree. That means it reached up to the top of the canopy, which it had to do to be able to flower because it needed that light to induce flowering. It was one of the larger trees in the forest. It, it would grow anywhere three to six feet in diameter commonly, but some record ones going over 10 feet in diameter. It would go 90 feet or higher, sometimes up to 120 feet. In height, so it was, it was a very large tree. Some people would call it the, the redwood of the east, even though it was nowhere near as big as a, a redwood in the west. But for the eastern tree, it was one of the largest trees in our range. And Bill, it must have supported a lot of animal species in the forest. When I give my talks, I always say it supports everything from bees to bears, and that's because it produced a very consistent mast crop, which is the nut crop, that year to year it, it continually produce that so the wildlife could live off that. Unlike the oaks that have now replaced the chestnut, oaks kind of have a good crop one year and then a couple years of not so good crops. And so you have this cycling of, of how many nuts are being produced. But chestnut, because it flowers very late in the year and doesn't get affected by late frost, produces a very stable, nutritious crop of nuts. So very important for wildlife. 
But it's not just the nuts. It's also the leaves. Leaves were very important to insects and even things like frogs and stuff and uh, organisms that live in the leaf litter. Chestnut leaves decompose very quickly, so you have a very quick nutrient cycling. The pollen was very important to pollinators like uh, bumblebees gave uh, abundant pollen in a time of year where there wasn't other trees flowering, so it helped carry these uh, pollinators through the summer. So very important to wildlife. Mm-hmm. And then along comes this Cryphonectria fungus. How does it kill the trees? The way this fungus works is that it will enter a wound in the tree, and when it first enters, it'll just live what we call as a saprophyte, meaning it just lives off the dead tissues of the tree. And that's not a problem. It can do that and, and doesn't harm the tree. But then it goes to a change. And when it makes this change, it does a, a couple different things. It starts forming what's called mycelial fans. And these are kind of like little wedges that help pry its way into healthy tissue. And then ahead of those fans, it starts producing acids and enzymes that kill the tissue ahead of the fungus and then allows those nutrients to spill out, and the fungus eats that, basically. This forms a structure on the tree called a canker, and that's dead tissue with the fungus in it, and these cankers eventually girdle the tree. They grow completely around a stem, choking it off so that we get no food conductions up and down. So everything above that canker eventually dies. If you get a canker at the base of the tree, it gets killed all the way down to the ground. Here's what's interesting is that the fungus cannot compete with the microorganisms in the soil, and therefore the roots of the chestnut are protected by that soil. And chestnut has the ability to sprout from the root collar. So that's one reason why the chestnut really hasn't gone extinct. It's because it gets killed down to the ground, it re-sprouts, it'll grow for a while, get infected again, gets killed down, and it goes through this, what I call a Sisyphus-like cycle, cycling back and forth until eventually you run out of nutrients in the roots and everything dies. What was the overall result for the forest, the chestnut trees? Well, it was devastating. I mean, you see some of the pictures of just areas where there's nothing but skeleton trees where there was 100% chestnuts in some areas. But it, it was devastating. Wildlife populations dropped for those ones that relied on the American chestnut. There was actually at least five insect species that are thought to have gone extinct because they were so tied to the American chestnut that when it was lost, they were lost also. So very devastating to wildlife uh, as well as to our human culture. People kind of mourn the loss of the chestnut, and there are apparently several organizations that are trying to restore it. Can you tell us about some of those? The major one is the American Chestnut Foundation. They started with the breeding program back in 1983, same year that I started graduate school. They've been doing that breeding program for many, many years. Again, they've had partial success. It's a good program. We are collaborating with them very closely, and they have now kind of adopted our genetic engineering, and we're doing actually a little bit of both, finding our technologies to help bring back the chestnut tree. There is also other groups. There's the American Chestnut Cooperators Foundation. Basically, what they're doing is they're trying to find large surviving American chestnut trees and breeding them in the hopes that some of them have a little bit of resistance and that they could maybe stack that resistance together. They haven't been too successful so far, and it's, it's kind of a, a difficult thing because a lot of these surviving trees are only surviving because they're what we call escapes and not necessarily resistant. Uh-huh. But, um, but they do have a program that's going on, and people are still continuing with the hope of at least finding some resistance that way too. Yeah, well, we, we can hope that it'll work out and we'll get those trees back. 
So now you know how important chestnut trees were and what a great loss it was when the blight wiped them out of our American forests. Our expert today has been Dr. William Powell, Director of the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project at SUNY Syracuse. And this is Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country, wishing you a very happy holiday season. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Professor Dr. William Powell, Director of the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse. This has been your host, Rosie Starr, Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions providing tools for action and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org On last week's Wait, Wait, Luke Burbank refused to believe Boris Johnson's denials that his office held an illegal Christmas party. Yeah, he looks like he was at a three-day party (laughs) under a helicopter. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. We are spiking the eggnog in case you decide to join us for this week's show with special guests.